David, you get to learn how to edit this chunk out. Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. May is AAPI month. To kick it off, Sean and I are discussing the history of San Francisco's world-famous Chinatown and what it reveals about the history and legacy of Chinese immigration in America. Hi, Sean. Hey, Mason. Welcome to your month, your first of two months. <laughs> Can we say that? Is that is that acceptable? I feel like you've already like well put your like like you've grabbed onto the next two months as as yours in different ways. There's no choice. But tell the audience what I'm talking about. There's almost no choice in it. As the person who represents this community on this podcast, I must, uh, this month is AAPI month, Asian American Pacific Islander month. Gentle reminder, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, two very distinct group of people. Don't get it twisted. Anyways, as an Asian American, I think it's important and fun to talk about this, especially in the art space. I Well, hate to say this, but like removing it from what often Asian American representation discourse gets flattened to on Twitter with, oh my God, one of us is in a movie or one of us is starring in a Marvel movie. Boba, end of discourse. So I think this is a great opportunity to talk about art and history (laughs) in a thoughtful, interesting way. So this month we'll be focusing on issues and ideas in art that pertain particularly to the history of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. There's a lot of um, not just U.S. art history, but a lot of concepts in the entirety of the Western canon that touch on this. And as we'll talk about, particularly with today's episode, there are a lot of social concepts that are loosely tied to art that are, are, are just as entangled. And then, of course, Next month, since I mentioned it, next month is Pride Month, so that's going to be your month too. The gays shall take us over. Yeah, it, summertime. You you represent. You are the stand-in for every minority here. Apparently, I'm just realizing. This. <laughs> oh shit! I better find the rest of them in a hurry. So, this week we are talking about Chinatowns, and I think we're specifically going to focus on San Francisco's Chinatown. Correct? Yeah. But of course, they are not. Well, maybe. West Coast Chinatowns are the most famous. They are not only here on this coast and even in this country. They are present all over the world, correct? Absolutely. Sean, would you like to give a little bit of history to the idea of the Chinatown, where where our modern concept of a Chinatown neighborhood comes from? Right. I think it, um, at least from what I understand about San Francisco and its importance. It originally was a lot of immigrants from Hong Kong. um, And East Asians have a long history, right? Especially with the industrialization and the railroads of being workers brought here, you know, to do essentially slave labor to help build and grow the West. And Chinatowns came out of large settlements and enclaves of Chinese people into specific concentrations and regions. And... I think through a a combination of things, strength and safety and community, but also racist government (laughs) districting and 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 such, you get the development of uh, Chinatowns, um, which 
SF's Chinatown, I think it was the first North American one, and it was one of the most highly densely populated areas in the West for a very long time. So I think the quote is somewhere in the 70s, it was about 20 times as densely populated compared to the rest of the city. And its evolution today, it's often a place for other Chinese people to live, especially for current or newer immigrants as well. It's an easy place to find some semblance of home and culture, but it often is also just a tourist stop. So I think today we're going to explore explore these perceptions and why they may be wrong or why you might have them. And it should be noted that the idea of Chinatown is not unique only to Chinese people, right? You get these sorts of neighborhoods in every city across the United States, particularly as a nation of immigrants. On the East Coast, you have enclaves of Italians and Irish and, you know, certain neighborhoods that are populated by these groups. The reason being that when you come to a country, you are going to find places where people with similar backgrounds to you are, and you are going to congregate there. So this this has happened with every immigrant group ever across the entire span of this nation. The reason why we have such concentration of Asian American and Pacific Islander people on the West Coast is because when you think about what international travel was like in the 19th century, you were not going to land in New York if you were coming from China or Japan or Korea, for example. <laughs> so while the East Coast had people from Ireland, people from Italy, uh, people from Eastern Europe to do this sort of work, as well as people who were descended from or were recently freed slaves on the West Coast, where we did not have as long a history of slavery, a lot of that labor was given to people from Asia and Pacific nations coming over and, and arriving in California. Americans saw a lot of um, a lot of these people, but especially the Chinese, as a threat in the same way that we saw black folk Anyone. as a threat. <laughs> Similar sort of idea. These people were sort of brought over with this promise of work, right? Like, hey, come here, we can employ you. Or they would have family that came over and found work and, and word gets around. And so you you come over looking for work. And same conversation that we are still having about certain groups of people in the mid to late 1800s, we're, we're seeing influx over from China and saying, well, these people are coming to take our jobs. We have to, we have to do something about it. But you brought them for the jobs. Right. And as a podcast that is based in Sacramento, we should note that this is the foothold of the Transcontinental Railroad. Yeah. This is the uh, where it terminated in the West. It's one of our few things that the city is famous for. The, <laughs> we are the unknown capital of the sixth largest economy in the world. Woo! And the Transcontinental Railroad started here on the West Coast. Um, so the western leg of the Transcontinental Railroad was built largely by Chinese immigrants and proportional to other groups. And as a result of this perceived influx of dangerous people, uh, the United States passed a number of immigration acts that were, they were new at the time. I think that hearing them now, you know, we can draw parallels to the Muslim ban from a couple of years ago. There's a long history of these sorts of legislative acts, but for the time they were kind of new and innovative 
if we want to use that sort of terminology. Sean, were you familiar with this history before we were researching? A little bit vaguely like U.S. history. Oh, yeah. Um, the Page Act. Um, anyways, we, we, put, we put Chinese people in cages because their heads were weird. Anyways, moving along to the next part of history. <laughs> and that's about it. Right. And the Page Act is just like... The tip of the iceberg. The beginning, right? So the, the Page Act of 1875 was sort of laid the groundwork for Chinese exclusion as it was termed. Uh, but what that specifically banned was Chinese women from immigrating to the United States. They were viewed as sex workers, a stereotype that we have not yet escaped, and seen as a potential threat to the workforce and to the purity of good old-fashioned white Americans. So after that had been passed, that sort of lays the foundation for the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was signed by President Chester A. Arthur, who most of us forget was even a person who was ever alive. It was signed in 1882, and it prohibited all immigration of Chinese laborers. This is a big deal because that was the manual labor force, right? There wasn't anybody else really working on the railroad except for people who would work for starvation wages. Um, which were mostly immigrant communities. It is important to note that this law was technically in place until 1943. <sighs> it was not repealed until we signed the Magnusian Act in 1943, which allowed 105 Chinese people to enter per year. Interesting. It was later increased by the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which abolished direct racial barriers across racial lines and later by the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which abolished the national origins formula. For anybody who doesn't know, we as a nation were for a very long time obsessed with this idea that we could only maintain our Protestant Anglo-Saxon purity if we limited immigrants from different places by ratios. Eugenics! It was basically eugenics. So what effect does this have? Why are we talking about this in relationship to Chinatowns? Well, yikes. Basically, Chinese people were forced to congregate together, right? Out of necessity, um, and because they probably drew this little square and said, y'all can be here. Don't leave. Right. A lot of local, and I believe some of those federal acts, banned Chinese from naturalizing as mm -hmm. well. So you would, you would arrive in the U.S., you would be able to work, right? Of course. We need your labor. Right. We didn't even have our very lax uh, labor protections that we do now. The jungle had not come out. <laughs> so you are what we would term now, perhaps, an illegal immigrant. So you would need to find places of community near where the work was in a time when we are still settling expanses of the American West. One way that you can do that is to actually build out a neighborhood. Which they did. Mm -hmm. And I guess, right, and then when there's... Like you were, you were talking about before this, and then when there's perceived threats that threaten anything to move beyond these boundaries of these tightly confined neighborhoods, the U.S. and um, white people in general acted with particular violence, right? With at the turn of the century, in the in the 1900s, um, the outburst of the bubonic plague, right? Someone in San Francisco Chinatown was found dead with the bubonic plague, and the <laughs> government's res response was burn it all down um, <laughs> with some sort of... A quick correction, the government's initial response, and tell me if this sounds familiar, was that there is no plague. <laughs> Shh, 
No. When the bubonic plague first broke out in Chinatown, they, they said that this is not happening. And then it ravaged uh, the neighborhood, as a plague does, and it was viewed as... A Chinese disease. A Chinese disease. Um, even though we knew by that point that it was carried by fleas. Science had figured that out. It was not... Um, Europe? Medieval England. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was allowed to ravage Chinatown unchecked. But that further stoked this racial fear, much like we're seeing right now, that Chinese were inherently dangerous and, and disease-ridden. And look at them, they can't even take care of themselves. All of this, I mean, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast and you are 10 or 15 minutes in, whatever, wherever we're at, and you're still listening, you are at least probably aware of this sort of thing. And at least you are not probably surprised by it. This is not, this should not be shocking history at this point. And if it is, I have some book suggestions. But the thing that makes this interesting for a podcast like us is the sort of unforeseen effects that this can have on culture. And and in this case, it creates what we now know um, and view in this sort of nostalgic rose colored lens kind of way as the American Chinatown. Yeah. Um, I just want to do a small side. We can cut this if you decide it doesn't work. But when you were kind of talking about those those Chinese exclusion acts going until the 40s, which I didn't realize, um, which puts an even more impressive backdrop on one of the most forgotten things to me about Chinese American history for all of our, like, I'm not generalizing. I am talking from experience of my parents and my friends who are all Chinese American. We are so desperate to see media representation. And often that's like the, our easiest way to feel included in the conversation. But um, no one really talks about enough Anna Mae Wong, who was a film star from the 20s and 30s, who successfully transitioned from silent film to talkies, as you would say. But she always played the two roles of the submissive woman or the dragon lady who is the evil sexual villain, which both of them are very sexual. And it ties to kind of one of the biggest missed opportunities of her career, which I'm sure you're familiar, um, the Hayes Code, which technically was supposed to only be not allow interrelational relationships between white and black folks. Um, but it definitely came into play when she advocated for the role of the lead role in The Good Earth, which was a film adaptation of a book by some white lady. Anyways, the person who did end up playing the role she was vouching for, Louise Rayner, won her second Oscar in a row. Um, but Anna Mae Wong basically had zero shot of getting cast because the lead guy was already a white guy in yellow face, ready to go. So and I think just to hear that I didn't realize that the Chinese Exclusion Act was still going on, it puts another layer of, wow, a really valiant yet futile effort to um, kind of work your way out of the racist trappings of the Hollywood system. And we should clarify, I do not know to what extent it was enforced. It may have been enforced fully through the 1940s, <laughs> but as a general rule in this nation, we have a long history of forgetting that <laughs> things are on the books. Oops. Oh, that's there still, huh? Just because they were on the books doesn't mean that they were enforced. But the fact that we didn't get around to repealing it and that when we did, it was the direct result of repealing things for everyone else kind of, you know, 
kind of underlines the uh, the real issue there. Yeah, absolutely. So as a result, we end up with, particularly in San Francisco, with these neighborhoods that are enclaves, let's say safe spaces, that's what they are, for Chinese immigrants um, who who are finding work, who are able to do work and are willing to do work that other people cannot or will not or are willing to do it more cheaply, as is often the case. And with it, you know, the, these are these are people who grew up in China. That is their culture. And because they are living in this neighborhood, they have no reason to assimilate with the white culture, right? There's, there's no reason for them to become what we might think of as American. So what ends up happening is Chinese culture and visual aesthetics and, and dress and, and all of this permeates the neighborhood. You know, they are the people that own the buildings and, and are decorating them. And, you know, it is Chinese tailors that make the clothing and Chinese cooks that cook the food. And so you end up with this sort of small community that would be comparable in some ways to whatever parts of China they may have come from, right? Right. Just sort of adapted to the new place where they live. Which in SF, I think, was mostly Guangdong, so like Cantonese people. Originally, um, a lot of Taishanese, uh, which is from the Hong Kong area, but I think a later immigration of mostly people from kind of the Cantonese-speaking part of China made it all there. And if you go to Chinatown these days, you better, especially in SF, you speak Cantonese, you won't get anywhere in Mandarin, really, especially if your Mandarin is bad as mine. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we speaking from uh, personal experience here? Yeah, it's pretty, um, uh, as someone who has like a kindergartner's ability in Mandarin, it's fascinating because you grow up picking bits and pieces and learning. So most of the food I know how to order, I know how to order it in Cantonese because I'm just usually in a setting where Cantonese is being speaking and you learn that. First, so <laughs> I can order food in Cantonese, tell you how many people I need to sit down, what kind of tea I want, and talk like a kindergartner in Mandarin. <laughs> Hire me for your translation <laughs> needs. You're welcome. Now, if that is not, you know, a marketable, I don't know what is. <laughs> you have you have a you have a business possibility. <laughs> Hire, Hire me for your kindergarten level, for your kindergarten level Mandarin. Yes, yes, I just know it. <laughs> so. For anyone who is not familiar, San Francisco was more or less leveled in 1906 by the big earthquake. And that includes almost the entirety of Chinatown at that time. Mm -hmm. It was destroyed. And so when you go to San Francisco now, the, the Chinatown that you go to is a sort of facsimile. It, it is a reconstruction and a modernization of what Chinatown was. And while you could argue that that would have always happened, right, as cities modernize, you know, it, and, and as we've moved, particularly uh, West Coast cities have, have moved into the modern era, these ideas of, you know, these tight-knit neighborhoods have kind of disappeared. But the fact that it was wiped out and sort of rebuilt is going to be important. But before that, we have actually a, a pretty impressive record of what Chinatown looked like in the late 19th century because there was a white photographer um, who was photographing it. 
a man named uh, Arnold Genthe, who was a German immigrant who naturalized here in the U.S. He became a citizen, and he photographed a lot. I believe he had a studio in San Francisco that was destroyed in the earthquake. Damn. Um, but his his work on Chinatown survived and was published in a book uh, in 1908, I believe. A lot of photographs from the time that you might see of the earthquake's aftermath were his as well. He published a book of that. One of his most famous photographs is looking down Sacramento Street in San Francisco of the leveled city. But he made a great number of photographs on the street of these Chinese immigrants who were living in Chinatown and living a very uniquely Chinese-style lifestyle. He was particularly fascinated with children, which raises an eyebrow now. Uh, it was, you know, we cannot speak to uh, intentions this far out. It was much more common to photograph children. Uh, Lewis Carroll almost solely photographed children. Ooh. They're very creepy photographs. Ooh. We might have to do an episode on that. Exposed. But the, one of the big things about photographing Chinese children at this time was that it was a signifier that the people in Chinatown had enough money to begin having families. There was this rising merchant class. Um, and that could be documented by the fact that there were young Chinese people who had been born in the United States there. We just lost our field producer for a minute. I'm going to get some water then. And some whiskey! Or, or something Chinese. We're going to take a quick break. What would be a, a Chinese adult beverage, for example? Oh, Chinese, Chinese rice wine. There's some moonshines out there that are particularly intense. You, you said that, and I realized that I was only familiar with uh, Japanese beverages. Which have a finer history of, like, refined distillery, etc. Yeah. I think it's a large... Oh, Asians fucking love cognac. Really? Hennessy. Every Asian American ever... Hennessy. Huh. And we have a, a sauce called XO sauce, yeah. which is based off like Hennessy, which is like just a like a, a sauce you make with this expensive dried Chinese ingredients to like put in a stir fry. But yeah, cognac is where them bitches are at. Interesting. Who knows why? So rice wine makes sense. Probably rice lagers too, I would imagine. Yeah. And like, you know, the cheap shitty beers, Sing Tao and all that. I've never had any of them. Right. There's some really good cheap shitty Asian beers out there, I must say. Sapporo, like most of the Japanese ones, I think are pretty solid. Yeah, Orion is a favorite of mine mm. anytime I get poke. Um, okay, we were talking about Gentha. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So when we first started talking about really focusing this month, I believe that's when I sent you the the video on Gentha, who SF MoMA or the museum, the California History Museum, I can't remember who owns a whole bunch of his prints, they put out a little video of the work that he did in Chinatown. Yes. And so I was all excited because there was like a, a photographic angle um, in here. Were you familiar with that work at all? Had you seen it before? I had not seen it until you told me about it and gotten a chance to look at it. It is cool. Um, I, you know, I can't be an expert on talking about 
necessarily the photographic quality of it. It seems like very much like semi-candid, unless they're not candid action shots. There is a lot of kids. It is an interesting insight to see that everyone is in hanfu or like semi-traditional clothing, like clothing that looks like what people in China were wearing at that time chronologically, which is slightly more comfortable, practical versions of historical clothing um, and wearing their hair very traditionally, which is... Interesting to see, and you kind of still find it there if we want to talk about, like, purity, which I feel like is, for every Asian American, there's always this discussion about, like, how close are you to the motherland? How how authentically can you practice and understand the culture? Um, and Chinatowns represent, just partially because of its concentration of immigrants, like, as close as you can get to that. But then there's also that double-edged sword of oh, but we don't want to be like Chinatown people because they're the po- they're they're the poor ones who haven't you know made it out of there. So there's that weird cultural push and pull about it all. I do want to read an excerpt from the California Historical Society's website. Hmm. I, I'll put a link to this page in the show notes, um, so everyone can check it out. I I highly suggest looking at Genthus' work because it's a really good example of sort of street photography was at that time, but also like how white people photographed cultures that were outside of ours. (laughs) And it's interesting too, because Genta being a immigrant himself, one would think that he would have a different sort of viewpoint and it's easy to sort of prescribe that to his work, whether or not that's true. (laughs) I don't know if it's fair to say. From the California Historical Society. Genta's project might be viewed as laudable, He sought to define the Chinese as a people worthy of respect, and he brought what was then a sophisticated aesthetic sensibility to subject matter previously viewed in abject terms. But it was also fraught. Genta's work perpetuated the dominant social structure of his day, dividing the Chinese along class lines that conformed to his value system. As an outsider who sometimes concealed his camera so as to photograph people unaware, he was essentially surveilling the Chinese, and he retained the power to define them. They became, quote, young aristocrats or, quote, a slave girl, because that's what he called them. (sighs) This is pretty common for this type of photography in this era. Mm -hmm. You could argue that it's not uncommon for National Geographic now, or at least through the 1980s. But it also really, it reminds me of the work of Edward S. Curtis, who photographed the American Indians just a few decades before Gentho was photographing Chinatown and rode out, you know, out into the Great Plains to to photograph tribes where they were, to photograph tribes on their um, native lands and in their native garb. He was funded by magnets of the time. And while he died in poverty and never figured out how to make money off of his work, his photographs for many generations defined what we understood as the American Indian, what the native people of this country looked like. Um, The problem being that it turned out most of his photographs were staged. They were people who did not live that way, and they were wearing clothing that they would not wear in those situations. And so while it had this error of nobility, right, this, this like great moral undertaking, it's terribly fraught because it's not a true history. I think that Genta's work is 
pretty similar, right? He's going into Chinatown. He's a man who does not understand what he's looking at. And while he's photographing people as they are, we don't we don't know which ones were posed. We don't know the context. how much interaction he had with these people. Yeah, we don't have any context. Um, but they're the only photographs really that we have of Chinatown pre-1906, 1907. A little ominous. You know, there's all there's that ominous underpinning of did all of Chinatown have to fall? Was due to <laughs> like this is tinfoil conspiracy hat theory, but also not because the U.S. government is terrible. Like, what were all efforts made to save Chinatown that were possible? Probably not. Right, and you know it cannot be understated the devastation of the earthquake. Yeah, the nineteen oh six earthquake, which. We didn't know how to build earthquake-proof buildings, and everything was flammable. <laughs> and when you have those two things together, uh, you level a city. Oops. But this is an excellent example of if your two possibilities are conspiracy or incompetence, it is almost always the latter. It would not take very much for people to suffer just because they weren't being paid attention to or they were ignored, right? Mm-hmm. We were trying very hard for them not to be there because that was easier in some way to some people. Right. So as you brought up, by the time we get to Chinatown finally being rebuilt, it is a shiny plastic facsimile of what was there before. And public opinion on Chinatown had begun to change and on Chinese people had had begun to change, right? And white folk saw... Chinatown now, through a sort of nostalgic lens, they saw it as a tourist destination, as a place of wonderment, much like we view Asian locales still. But Chinatown was seen through this sudden nostalgic lens, this beautiful thing that had been lost and needed to be rebuilt. But what was rebuilt, of course, was a tourist-friendly sort of location, which which lost what had brought it into being, which was the necessity of a community and a place to call one's own. So, Sean, I'm curious, what is your perception of Chinatown now as an Asian American? Yeah. What are your feelings on it? I mean, I don't, I think they're important. Um, It's especially worrying how Chinatowns have been double economically hurt during the pandemic because everyone has been hurt economically, socially, mentally, and everything. But the added layer of Kung Flu and these terrible, lazy associations that somehow, right, echoing ominously things from the 19th, from the turn of the century, that somehow it is the Chinese people's fault that we have this disease meant that a lot of institutions in these Chinatowns are going under because they can't afford to pay rent and they can't afford to survive. To me, Chinatowns, I guess, are a sense of comfort. They kind of represent something I can attempt to relate to, though, honestly, I don't have that much, I'd say, culture in relation to what feels like, quote-unquote, mainland China, or even immigrants recently from mainland China. And part of that is just growing up speaking English a lot. And um, my parents, coming from Singapore which is his own, <laughs> that deserves an episode, is his own fun, messed up cultural history of mixing every East Asian and Southeast Asian culture together, plus a socialist mommy state. Don't cancel me, Singapore. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> there will be time, Singapore. Oh, in, in due time, in, in a year. 
But I do have to know, like, um, kind of what I've been taught or how to perceive. There is this little feeling of, ooh, it's so crowded and dirty and, like, Mm, is the is the best Chinese food really even there? It's so hard to get to it. So let's just go to other places. Like in San Francisco, there are other districts like Inner Richmond and Sunset, which are kind of like their own version of Chinatown, where it's less commercialized and less of a tourist destination, but also more areas for Chinese Americans and recent Chinese immigrants to build their own enclaves. Right. And it's much easier to be mobile now. And so you don't have to settle the first place that you get to. And as you become more affluent as an individual and as as groups of people, you can move to different places, which I, I thought it was interesting when you mentioned that for some, Chinatown is, is viewed as lesser or like, you know, a, a place where people are to be looked down upon because they are still there. Which is such a weird thing that human beings do, you know, mm-hmm. that that need to, like, find a difference between you and, and others and, and build that sort of class system where where one doesn't exist otherwise. Um, but that, that sort of need to be above someone else just for the sake of being above someone else. I, I was not aware that that, that that view was there. Yeah, maybe... No, I can say that, like, that is a feeling, like, I've heard from my parents and other East Asian American parents and even peers and stuff, especially with the wild inequality of wealth in the Bay Area and how everyone works in tech (laughs) and has to make X amount of dollars to go live in Sunnyvale or Palo Alto, and every child has to take 6,000 APs and have three and a half sports and cure cancer so they can all go to Harvard. There, There is that implication there. You don't see them living in Chinatown that often, right? Right, right. So, Because they went to Harvard. Oh, yeah, they're better than that. Right. Quote, this is not how I actually feel. This is how some people feel. No, this is an anti-Harvard podcast. Oh, yeah, we will, if, mm, we will make fun of any of our friends who somehow end up on this podcast that are from Harvard. Right. As um, alumni of state schools... Of the fine California State University system. No part of that is bitterness that <laughs> we didn't attend better schools at all. No, uh, not possible. Or, or fear that we are somehow moral and intellectual failures. Um, it, it's purely that as, um, speaking for myself as a socialist and a believer in uh, public education, I am a better person because I went to a state school. Duh. <laughs> That's funny. That is exactly what my AP English teacher said. <laughs> really? Yeah. He went to a state school and was like, like, you know, at that time it was like, get into fucking Harvard or die. And he was like, you know, you could just go to a state school and you'll be fine. <laughs> and I didn't understand it, but now I do. It's it's funny. I Because um, I'm an idiot, I only applied to Sac State and I got in and that was fine. I have thought about it a lot, especially when I applied to far four or five schools for graduate school, um, and and thinking about like the importance of going to a state school, especially right out of high school, and the fact that because I chose to go to a state school, I was not only with people from other majors, right? I had to take all this general ed and. Um, only a small part of my education was focused on art, 
but I was also with everybody who goes to a state school, you know, like it was an incredibly diverse campus and student body. And that was really underlined when I went to San Jose State, which is a terrible school. And I don't suggest that anybody goes there for uh, photography, but it has, I, I thought that this was awesome. It has a huge, huge Asian American and Asian immigrant um, population of the student body because San Jose has the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. Little Saigon. Yeah. So like you don't get that if you go to Harvard, you know? No. And yeah. And fun fact, it's unusual that it kind of happens like that because uh, Vietnamese people apparently usually built enclaves within Chinatowns. And one of the largest <laughs> prominent exceptions is Little Saigon in San Jose, where they said, uh, no. <laughs> to be clear, I don't endorse San Jose as an institution. The city itself is pretty cool. Yeah. I, it was really cool having, when I taught, having so many students who were, were immigrants and, and whose parents were immigrants and had like these really diverse backgrounds and were forced to take art because <laughs> they had to. And it was like, oh shit, this is a thing I can do. Like that was really cool. It's it's all the white people that ruin it, run the administration. Yeah, are <laughs> the problem. I, I need to. I just need to make that clear. <laughs> white people ruin it. Uh, that white needs people to be ruin it. Just t-shirt. Yeah, uh, just just like Chinatowns. Let's talk about food. Yeah, I know that this is um, <laughs> to some extent a, a area of passion for you, Sean. I have I have sampled your your cooking. I came over for a Lunar New Year one, yeah. year, didn't I? Yeah. Um, oh my God, yes. That was a long time ago now. It feels like a very long time ago. Oh my God. Yeah, so as, as a white American, my understanding of Chinese cuisine is, I wouldn't say from Chinatown. I grew up in the suburbs and we had, we actually had a, what I thought was a very tasty Chinese restaurant that's not there anymore, unfortunately. But it was it was owned by a Chinese family and, you know, they they made good food and we would go there on Saturday nights or whatever and, and, and that was dinner. But as an adult, I've, I've come to understand that, like, my concept of Chinese cuisine is very Americanized and have no way of, of contextualizing that other than, you know, meeting people who actually <laughs> are aware of the cuisine, right? So would you like to talk a little bit about that and about um, yeah. the sort of reality there? Yeah. Not a trick question. You won't get exposed. So when you think of Chinese food, it, understanding it like in your original understanding of it, what do you think of? Oh, lots of rice, beef and broccoli, um, calamari, <laughs> you know, uh, which I really enjoyed until I realized how intelligent oh. squids are. Oh. Um Stuff like that, sweet and sour, mm-hmm. you know, pot stickers and spring rolls and 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 yeah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Et cetera. MSG, mm-hmm. particularly the warning at the bottom that there is no MSG in this uh, in this food. <sighs> yeah, so so much fun to unpack there. But from what sources we read, you know, we're no actual expert historians. Though Mason is pretty close to one, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> Chinese American food ostensibly got created in 
San Francisco's Chinatown, or it's often created with it, uh, credited with doing so, and was making food that appealed to Western masses. That was just quote unquote weird, otherized, different enough to appeal. So, like, I think almost everyone says chop soy is the kind of first dish that represents Chinese American food, um, which literally translates to ends and bits. And looking up the history, Maybe it did kind of exist beforehand. I have actually never eaten chop suey. And I think that is because my my mom was like, no, you, you <laughs> shall never be infected with this horrid food. Which when I looked up, I'm like, no, I actually haven't had this. This sounds like a weird stir fry. Huh. Because it's a weird stir fry. That's yeah. like, even even I know that. Yeah. And the MSG thing, I don't know where that came from. Monosodium glutamate, by the way, exists naturally in lots of foods like mushrooms. It's a naturally occurring flavor. As I recall, um, it is a product of the 1950s or 60s. There was a racist doctor. Of course. Who fudged some data. Long story short, a, a racist doctor created a, a big old lie about it. And pinned it on Chinese food. Said that that it was harming white people, and the legend stuck. And now we still have this misplaced belief. Association. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of a, and, and, and like you said, MSG is a real thing. It's a naturally occurring flavor. Mushrooms, like umami, <laughs> if you want to go there with everyone's least favorite pretentious term for the other taste. Right. It has actually come around in modern food media like recipe development and all that as like something you sprinkle in to food and like to not be afraid of it, like get over it. It actually helps mm -hmm. enhance and deepen flavors in the same way salt often functions. Right. Um, and also that the more, the myth I'm more familiar with is that you feel tired, bloated, et cetera, because of MSG. And there have been countless blind studies proving that that is just utter bullshit. So there's that. We don't have to be afraid of it anymore because we have a new, completely natural, uh, readily occurring thing to be afraid of, and that's GMOs. Yeah, obviously. There's a, there's a new culinary boogeyman. It's going to make me gay. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. That was all that soy that you drank as a child. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So there's a lot of these. It's just, you know, hilariously ironic. We made this genre of food to appeal to white people that you still otherwise aggressively and say X, Y, Z negative things about it. My favorite is um, sweet and sour pork in Cantonese's guaylo yok, which is um, <laughs> hard to explain guaylo, but it's like, it's the white man's food. It's like literally white man's <laughs> white man's pork, but guaylo, like some of the some of the, the the cool white people know that. Oh, you call me a guaylo, aha, aha, rib. But it's like somewhere between. I guess it's not nearly as bad as saying cracker to a white man, but it's like haha, you like gringo or yeah, like it's, a term. It's that genre of like we will make fun of you, but not quite make it a slur. Get over it. So othering the one that others us. Haha. -ha! With sweet and sour pork question. I don't know why that one, but that's so funny to it, me. It's it's funny that that is sort of like the um the shitty spring break tattoo of of food. Soup or like serenity, allegedly. Right, right. Uh the, my tattoo says peace in it, you know. It says soup, honey. 
Yeah. <laughs> also, fortune cookies. Um, apparently, Japanese created on stateside. Real funny, real or- Orientalism 101. Definitely does not exist in China. Note, if you go to a to orchestra tour in China, do not ask for fortune cookies after dinner. Please. Please. <laughs> Somebody saw an opportunity to make money. They made money. Yeah. Now we have cultural misunderstanding. That's right, kids. Capitalism is racist and bad. <laughs> Anyways, um, the more interesting discussion <laughs> to have about this kind of food is I was taught, understandably, and it comes with this needing to subjugate and stratify everything, like, don't eat that stuff. Don't eat Panda Express. It's an embarrassment to our culture. It's not part of our culture, but it is. It is, you know, it is a kind of food that comes out of adapting to cultures and situations. I feel like there are many, like, weird variations on pizza, which America ostensibly owns as its own food that possibly came from Italy, but we have all those weird regional versions of it. Oh my God, especially some of those, like, deep dish or, like, Detroit style. There are some wild pizza varieties out there. Chicago style is a casserole. It's not pizza. Just get that out. Oh, great. Now all our Chicago fans are going to come from us. Fuck. <sighs> They're never going to let us on Hey Riddle Riddle. Damn it. They <sighs> fucked up. Mason, you fucked this up for me. This is my life's dream. I'm never going to get invited to Hello from the Magic Tavern. Damn it. We'll have to try again. We have to do a Chicago love tribute episode. We'll work on it. <laughs> we'll spend an hour uh, talking shit about the Skygate, the fucking silver bean. And somebody in Chicago will love that. Ooh, I don't know anything about it besides it's a bean. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, where was I? You were talking about how, uh, like, Panda Express yes. and, and fast food. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's bizarre. Um, but I understand it's a, a need to reject a misconception of our culture. Which, sure, but it's, I think it's important to... For, for many Asian, Asian Americans to kind of like get over that weird shame of it and understand that it can be delicious-ish. It, it is, you know, it's often reliant on out of necessity, quote unquote, cheaper produce and techniques to make food to make a living. So I think it's just, uh, it's a great kind of cultural touchstone to see it <laughs> proliferate and exist in almost any Chinese restaurant. There are a lot of them in Sacramento that kind of just do the Chinese-American thing. But it's also important to delineate, right? Like, that is not all that Chinese food is. There are plenty of regions that don't like to eat rice. Did you know that, like, in the North, it's mostly bread that are unyeasted, like, really soft, fluffy bread? Now would be a good time to point out that China is a very large country that encompasses a great many different land types and a great many different groups of people. So... It might surprise you to hear that Chinese food is not a monolithic concept. Yes. So the joke always that when someone asks you, like, well, what's your favorite food? Chinese food. Okay, what's your favorite dish? And, like, from which region? And I have nowhere near an expertise knowledge of the region. But there's so much diversity and fascinating food to understand from it. And if you kind of look at... This term makes me want to puke, but in air quotes, foodie culture, or like basically the lazy proliferation of what is trendy, cool food. Like Chinese food has made huge strides in being popularized, but there's also been an 
I'd say semi-recent like swell in popularity of bringing franchises from China and Asia directly, porting them over as somehow that is a bigger stamp of authenticity or importance, right? Like this is there's this weird endless cycle of purity tests. Um, for the people unfamiliar, Din Tai Fung, which is I guess a wildly popular, not just dumplings, but dumplings and dim sum thing. The lines for when it opened were like three hours long, at least to like get your name in the line. It was insane. And in New York, there is a like franchise of Xi'an Famous Foods, which also covers like another whole subgenre of noodles and bread. But all this is to say is like, now it's become quote unquote cool enough to, you know, seem cultured enough for a certain subset of coastal <laughs> coastal Americans <laughs> to understand or eat this food. But then we get a lot of white people kind of recontextualizing the food or borrowing ideas of the food and putting it into their own work and then claiming it. And there we get into some weird quandaries. And I, I know chefs that have studied more so with Japanese traditions. Ooh, especially with Japanese food. And that sort of thing. And there is a very, that's a very fine line to walk, right? Where, at what point is it inspiration and at what point is it appropriation? Later this month, we're going to do an episode on on appropriation in art, particularly uh, Japanese appropriation in Western art. It is a thing that I know a little bit about um, and have studied a little bit as a student of modernism. But I think that that's a really good thing to keep in mind. And it's not an easy answer. There's one way to, to sort of think of it in that these things belong to particular people and only they have authority over them. And there's another idea, um, which is that everything is everyone's. And um, if I'm inspired by it, I'm allowed to use that. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's an important conversation that we still really need to have and that is very difficult to have of what qualifies as appropriation. And then once we know that, like, what does that mean? And what's it mean to have an international world when we do draw these lines and, and we say that things are or are not off limits? Yeah. My favorite is when it kind of works back. Like, especially there there are a lot of subgenres in Japanese cuisine that, like, ape western food and kind of do a japanese thing to it and my favorite reaction is when you put a bowl of japanese style sp spaghetti bolognese in front of a white person they go excuse me <laughs> 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 and it is delightful and fun and food is an interesting thing because people want to prattle on about it is ostensibly pretty universal no one is stopping you from eating xyz culture's food in fact it's probably important to try all these cultures and attempt to understand. But it's when we, we tend to take ownership over it and forget to credit where you're pulling from. I think, to me, one of the most egregious versions of it is modern California cuisine, which we love to say is just focused on farm to table, which apparently Sacramento likes to pretend we have ownership over. We're the city of trees, goddammit. <sighs> Yeah, ugh. We will always be the city of trees. I don't care what the water tower says. <laughs> we are the city of goddamn trees. And that's about it. <laughs> farm to fork? Fuck farm to fork. <laughs> We've got trees. 
You've been to Sac State? There's so many trees. Everywhere. Holy shit. Trees everywhere. Back to more important serious topics. <laughs> Anyways, yes. So California cuisine, farm to fork. Um, but it, what you'll find often, it's like all of a sudden they have a dish that almost apes every, like pan-Asian ideas where they just pull little bits and pieces from all across Asia, shove it together in a dish and put it in front of you. Which is okay, but it often gets flattened to the idea of a white chef's use of creativity, which is like, Miss Ma'am, you're using things any insert Asian culture home cook does all the time. And like, for better or for worse, that everyone has access to these materials is like, is both a great thing. It is fun to learn about cultures and be able to like bring it home and attempt to learn and make it with your own hands. But it just becomes this slippery slope when we um, mush it all together without regard or respect, or better yet, when there's always this thing of improving, modernizing, which is, if you're a white person, please don't do that over a culture, especially if you say, oh, I took like a year of classes in China. No. There are examples out there, I think, of it done successfully or done with a certain amount of respect. Like I think of, I have, which I haven't been to yet, Mr. Chu's, which is a very famous fine dining restaurant in San Francisco, I think within the last 10 years. And it is about a Chinese American man kind of recontextualizing what he ate growing up in a more fine dining setting. Um, but I, it, it is done with at least understanding of lived experience and nostalgia and it skirts the line better, maybe, because you, in good faith, can trust that it's an homage rather than an appropriation. Right. I think that this comes down to, and it should always come down to, a question of ownership. It becomes very problematic when you introduce it as your thing, especially if you are white, right? And if by doing so, are you stepping on the toes of um, someone who is more of an expert? Right? Always. Um are you taking that thing because it will get you attention or are you taking this thing because you want to shine a spotlight on it? You know, and if that's the case, then you need to go, oh, and by the way, here's someone who has ownership over this that I do not have. Absolutely. Yeah. Dim sum by masters who spend their entire fucking lives learning how to make it. That That is something you never make at home because it's so fucking complicated. Uh, so it's always funny when you see someone like, hack or recontextualize something you're like you would never make that at home just go to a fucking restaurant to eat it god damn it <laughs> that's not home food why bother <laughs> so this has been a wide-ranging episode ah. and and to kick off this month what sean would you like our our listeners to take from this episode in particular um and be thinking about for for the month ahead as we continue on with AAPI month. Absolutely. Um, thanks to Mason, I, even I learned some things about just um, East Asian history, especially Chinese history in the U.S. Um, go support your Chinatowns. Please go support Chinatowns. They really need your support. Learn about food and culture, but don't gawk. Come from a place of respect and have fun with it. Ask me questions. Ask experts questions. It's a lot of fun. There's so much more to Chinese food and culture than I think gets presented or you know. Always be in search of knowledge, rarely in search of mastery. Indeed. 
How wasn't the outro that I wrote? Close enough. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter? <laughs>